Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Matt Siddle, Portfolio Manager of Fidelity Europe Fund, joins us today to discuss the latest market movements in Europe and where he is finding opportunities in the second half of 2022. In addition to where he is finding opportunities, Matt also provides a positioning update for his fund and explains why European value is looking cheap right now. With host Pamela Ritchie, Matt unpacks the energy needs in Europe this winter, the health of the consumer in Europe, and how this differs from country by country, thoughts on moves by central banks, specifically the Bank of England, and more. Matt believes buying a value-based European equity fund is a good fit for those investors looking to diversify from North American exposure. Stay tuned for more. This podcast was recorded on August 12th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Matt, happy Friday. Great to see you. How are you? Good to see you. I'm very well. Thanks, Pamela. Good to see you again. Nice to have you join us here again. And it's interesting watching the reaction of the markets, watching the commentary surrounding it. Do you think that we've gotten sort of peak bearish and and moved well beyond that? Is is there, in fact, the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel for for European shares? Well, I certainly think that there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I think the question really for investors is how long the tunnel is before we emerge from it. You know, it's clear that the economic environment is going to be difficult this winter for, for many of the reasons that you, you pointed out already. You know, gas prices have risen a lot and, and heating bills this winter are, are going to be significantly higher and, and that will pressure the consumer. But for our alternatives, you know, Russian gas supply has obviously fallen. I, I think you, you know, most people will know that, uh, that, that that's fallen very significantly. In fact, they, they've cut supply to through the key pipelines by 80%. And that's one of the reasons why prices have got up so high. But there are alternatives out there. We are finding LNG coming in. The Germans are building LNG import terminals. Spain, UK already have them. So there's certainly light at the end of the tunnel. The question is simply, you know, how difficult is the next six months? How difficult is this winter going to be? But but for a, a three-year outlook, there's some fantastic opportunities out there. Certainly, certainly light at the end of the tunnel. So, I mean, the, the question that you always ask on, on the value side of things is, is something value for a reason? And you could look at that sort of broadly at the discussion of the macro backdrop for Europe, but also for the companies within. I mean, I'm assuming the companies that have been able to hold on to higher valuations do have moats around them. They probably have size. They probably have access to capital. What of the others? And, and are they are they traps, essentially? 
Yeah, so, um, and this is where I think it's important to think about the valuation gaps within sectors. You know, some sectors were always going to trade on lower multiples than others. You know, there's a very good reason why software companies generally trade on higher multiples than autos or banks. They're, they're much more cash generative companies that can grow and turn their profits into cash. So, so, you know, investors, the free cash flow that is generated for investors is significantly higher than a capital intensive business like an oil company or, or, or a bank if that decides to grow. However, when you find a very wide gap within the same industry, I think that offers a much, much better opportunity. And in particular, you do have to stop it, right? So, you know, there are some businesses where the valuation gap has got wide for a reason, because they're structurally challenged, because their products are, are out of date, because a patent's about to expire, because you know, they're competitively not as good as, as the other businesses. But, but sometimes it's simply that, um, that investor sentiment is particularly strong in one area and weaker in another. And, and that is much more of an opportunity to me where, where it's more sentiment driven rather than driven by a structural gap in the fundamentals. And, and those are the areas that I'm looking for. So, you know, I tend to have a bias towards those sectors which are higher quality, but very much a focus on stock picking for those stocks which are attractively valued rather than simply chasing after the best, most expensive businesses out there. Do you also, within what you're looking for, that, that may have a, a lower valuation, are you also looking at companies that may be, you know, may be beneficial to investors if the company is, is taken out, if there's consolidation within the sector industry? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that, that would obviously offer an upside. And, you know, sometimes particular, and this is where it comes down to, is it re cheap because of a structural reason or is it cheap because of sentiment if it's cheap because of a structural reason a corporate probably isn't going to want to buy it right. if it's cheap for a, a sentiment reason then corporates tend to have a longer time horizon with the stock market and and they're more likely to want to see that as an opportunity and 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 bid for the company and you know we've had examples of that in in the portfolio over the past couple of years, you know, particularly around COVID and, and where sometimes the stock market took a very different view as to, you know, the sentiment and, and how long it would take to recover. And, and strategic corporates could, could go out and pay very high premiums to buy good assets that were out of favor at the moment. Right, and, and pay up for investors, hopefully. That, that's the idea. Yeah. Okay, so here comes the, the currency question. You knew it was coming. Um, so the ECB is doing what it's doing. It's moving faster than some people thought, but it's also in a bit of a position where you think perhaps they can't do much more. I don't know, big debate. I won't ask you to come down on either side. But clearly for investors, currency is an issue. How do you answer that question? How do you tackle that? Yeah, so... There is one model you could use for, for currency valuation, which is looking at the balance of trade, looking at your terms of trade. Wow. And when, when the price of your imports goes up faster than the price of your exports, generally your currency is going to weaken because you have to pay more for your imports and, and you're not getting as much for your exports and vice versa. And one of the reasons why Europe's currency has weakened over the last six months is because Europe has to import a lot of basic energy and it exports a lot of manufactured goods. 
and the price of imported energy, particularly gas, has just shot up dramatically. So that is why Germany, after running 20 years of a trade surplus, suddenly has got a trade deficit. It's gone from a trade surplus to a trade deficit very quickly. That is going to weaken your currency, right? So question is not just on interest rates, because obviously interest rate differentials also help drive currencies. So but the balance of trade is one key item. Interest rate differentials is a, another one. But do you think that gas prices are, are going to stay, natural gas prices are going to stay at multiples, literally multiples of a level that you, you pay in the US. It is unbelievably profitable to export LNG from Canada and the US to Europe at the moment. The problem is there aren't enough terminals built to, to accept I mean, it. It 10 but, years, we're told, but maybe if you work a little faster. Well, yeah, well, you know. What do you say to that? That's the pushback. Well, that, we get. No, no, it takes a decade. <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot longer to build a a export terminal than it does to build an import terminal. So we should get on with that, should we? We should get on with that. Is well, that... I, I think there are some companies in Canada that are doing it already. I, I can think of projects in the west there of Canada are. that are ongoing. But the point being, it doesn't take 10 years to build an import terminal. And technically, there are things called floating LNG import terminals, and Germany's managing to get those up within a year. So, you know, hopefully by the end of this year, one of them will be live. There's another two planned, one for January 2023, another one for early in 2023. And there's a, a permanent uh, LNG import terminal planned for the end of 2023. So for our alternatives to, to Russian gas, we can build LNG import terminals. It will take 12 months, two years, but it's possible to do. You could get piped gas out of Africa. You could get piped gas out of uh, Israel. But there are alternatives, and these things take time, but, but they don't take 10 years. They take one or two years. And that's why I definitely can see gas prices remaining high through this winter. But if I was sat here in two years' time, uh, that, that gap, that differential will have narrowed significantly because people will start exporting gas to Europe where it's a lot more profitable to sell it rather than to Asia or the US. You know, it's going to normalize. Not not completely. I think there will always be a premium for gas prices, natural gas prices in Europe versus the US. But, but that gap will narrow as there's more import terminals. And that will help the currency. Right. And that will help the currency. Oh, right. So, so this may be an interesting time before some of those solutions. I mean, as you mentioned, one of those January 2023, which is months away. You would want to, the stock market will look through some, uh, because we're so aware of the problem at this point, at least we're in it. It's not like it's a surprise. So, so tell us a little bit about timing, which of course no one ever wants to talk about. You don't want to time the market, but tell us about timing anyway. Yeah, so there's two issues. There's the economy and then there's the stock market. I think the economy clearly is likely to weaken in the second half of this year, and it is unlikely to strengthen until 2023, probably spring, summer is the earliest you could reasonably hope for an improvement. And that would require gas prices to go down because of the import terminals. And, you know, if, if I wanted to paint a ray of light, you know, the, there is um, a, a positive story in the um, 
building of inventories. You know, I think lots of people right. are worried that, that, you know, Europe's going to run out of gas and there just won't be enough gas this winter. It's worth remembering that even though the Russians have cut exports by 80 percent and that has spiked prices massively, because prices have spiked massively and because the governments are so scared about this, they have found as many alternative sources as possible. The prices are sucking in gas that would otherwise go to Asia or other places. And actually, the storage terminals are fuller than they usually are. Right. So if you look at where gas storage is, gas storage is now above where it usually is and is likely to be completely full gas storage by autumn this year. At that point, once Europe stops needing to import as much gas as rapidly as possible, the pressure on prices is likely to ease. Once the gas terminals have built, that differential will narrow between the US and, and Europe. And that means that, you know, there is a ray of light but it's a question of how long it takes to get there. That's and that's a difficult call, right? So, yeah, and it's also then a case, that's the impact on the economy. How long are people going to anticipate forwards, right? Um, at the moment, governments have got an incentive to say as many scary things about natural gas in Europe as possible, right. because they want people to change their behavior. They want to make companies think of how they could have contingency plans, et cetera. But as I said, the actual storage facilities are filling up quicker than usual and are at higher than usual levels for this time of year. So it's not all negative. There are no. risks, but it's not all negative. So, so what you're talking about may actually be answering this question or it's the next piece of it. Matt, you know, what is the health of the consumer? Is it more regionally focused? Do you see opportunities in, in staples or, or discretionary here? I mean, as things perhaps get so beaten down, as you mentioned, and perhaps a little bit of levity yeah. is allowed in, what do you see there on the consumer front? Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely opportunities in consumer. The question is timing when and how much and how quickly to build positions. I think that currently the better risk reward is available in some of the consumer staples names because the valuation upside is maybe slightly less, but the risk of something going wrong in the next six or 12 months is significantly less. So, you know, the, the balance of risk reward looks a bit better there. But, you know, there's definitely good opportunities in European consumer cyclicals as well. And, you know, as the, the, as, as the system unfolds, you know, you could see some of these starting to work. You know, they're, they're not outperforming at this stage, but they're not falling at the rate that they were in the first few months of this year when the invasion first happened and everyone got spooked. So certainly see opportunities. It's a question of finding the right ones and timing when and how much to, to buy them. So you mentioned politicians, you know, in some ways, you can understand the game. It might be more in their interest to make things sound a bit gloomier now and then and then have that sort of a little bit of levity and so on. What about the Bank of England? You know, really all central banks, particularly, though, the Bank of England and the ECB. I mean, they're looking the Bank of England sounding quite gloomy, to be honest. I guess I guess I'm sort of lumping that in the in the category of politicians. But what are your thoughts on what the Bank of England is saying? Because it's not it's. Yeah. Not much optimism yeah. there. You've got to, one of the things you have to remember about um, Europe 
is that in the US, the central bank mandate is a balanced mandate between inflation and uh, jobs and GDP. I mean, Canada is just inflation. So we kind of, we're just inflation. Yeah. And and that is the same. So so we are just inflation in Europe. And if you are just focused on inflation, then it's a very negative outlook because input costs have shot up, and you know inflation in the UK is likely to to peak at double digit rates once um, energy prices go up, which will happen in October this year. But they sort of reset every six months, and and it will be a big step up when it comes in October. Is one of the reasons why the consumer is going to be under pressure in in this winter period and there will be an economic slowdown. Um, I I have no doubts about it and the Bank of England I'm sure is correct on that. However, the jobs market is really strong and wages are going up quite rapidly and that is one of the strong points that the UK economy has Uh, and you know in Europe, the UK has the strongest labour market in Europe. Um, Germany would be second. It also has very low unemployment. Wages aren't going up quite as quickly as they are in, in the UK, but it is a strong market. Some of the countries I'd be a bit more worried about are where the labour market isn't as strong, where wages aren't going up as quickly, and therefore if prices go up 8 or 10%, if wages are only going up 3 or 4 that's quite a big gap. If you've got wage inflation of 7% and price inflation of 10, okay, that's still a headwind, but it's it's not as big a gap as, uh, you know, if your wage inflation is only at 2%. So in some cases, in some aspects, the UK economy has, has actually got a stronger um, part to it. Tell us a little bit about how you're positioned right now and, and to what extent you're sort of making sure you have some dry powder. What, tell us a bit about your positioning within the fund. Yep. So um, we are positioned overweight in consumer staples where the market sold off quite a lot of European ideas earlier this year because of fears about input costs and pressure on the consumer budget. It's not that those fears are, are wrong. It's just those companies or some of those companies are very experienced at managing those risks and are demonstrating a, a strong track record at doing so. And um, the valuations look pretty attractive. Uh, As I said, you know, some of the valuations there are unusually cheap on on a medium term view. And the fundamentals are not as bad as people fear. And uh, and and I think there's there's attractive upside on on several of those names. In consumer discretionary, there's more risk those, those businesses are more sensitive to an economic slowdown and, and consumer spending, but the valuations are even cheaper on some of them. And that means that some stocks are, are attractive, even with those risks. Some of those stocks are already trading at valuation lows seen in the financial crisis that you saw back in 2008. The economy's bad. I'm not sure it's worse than it was in 2008. So, you know, that that seems like there's some opportunities out there. That's not every stock. 
right? You, you still got to be selective, but, but I definitely find opportunities in that area. The area where I'm most cautious is more the industrial and late cycle part of the economy, where people are still very bullish. They're still anticipating peak margins. They're anticipating margins to go up next year, even though there's input costs and, and a probable slowdown in the economy. And, you know, Early cycle companies are called early cycle for a reason because they see the impact early. Late cycle companies are called late cycle for a reason because when the early cycle companies reduce their orders, that's when the late cycle companies start to see their impact. And people aren't pricing that in yet. So I'm much more cautious on that part of the stock market in Europe, and that's where the, the bigger underweights are. That is fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Really, really interesting to sort of figure out how economies around the world are, are in different points within, within the cycle. One question I wanted to ask you, which is, is almost a, it's either a mega trend or it's a, a, you know, it's more almost a demographic trend, but this idea of onshoring the trade discussion, Europe, obviously huge exporter. And what of, the trade tensions with China, more between the U.S. and China, but ultimately the impact that that has on the economy. How, how do you look at that within companies and those that are exposed to China? I think this is a, 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 a complex topic. I think that um, you know it, it is clear that trade is is uh, regionalizing more than globalizing uh, right. at the moment. And that means that companies which are reliant on imports or export chain, value chains, supply chains that involve China, uh, there's some, there's some risks. If Europe needs to rebuild more industrial capability and there's more onshoring uh, going on or nearshoring to places like Eastern Europe or, or North Africa, then some companies, they, they can just sell the kit to the plants that need to be built in Eastern Europe and not to the plants that were being built in, in China. So it is quite stock specific, the, the impacts on that. It's definitely something that I'm considering in my analysis, but it's not a simple answer that this sector is good or that sector is bad. Um, it, it's a more complex piece of analysis. Another reason to have you and uh, the team of Fidelity taking a look at this, because we, 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 I mean, how would we know? without that type of analysis going on. It is so stock specific. So it'll be so interesting ultimately, don't you think, to sort of see where things have leveled out. As you say, if you don't have to send things so far because they're being built closer, what, what does it all sort of alley up to in the end? Um, just to wrap up a little bit, what would you like to leave investors with on, on looking at European stocks at this point? Look, there are lots of good businesses in Europe. There are lots of businesses that have got international operations. You know, Europe itself accounts for about half the profitability of the European stock market. Roughly a quarter comes from North America. Roughly a quarter comes from emerging markets. Um, there are lots of really good businesses, and there's a lot of fear about investing in Europe at the moment. Right. And that has driven the valuation of the European stock market down, and it's driven valuation gaps within Europe to very wide levels. And that's throwing up a lot of opportunities for businesses which are good businesses, maybe not the fastest growth 
best businesses, the, the, the sort of most exciting names out there. Maybe those are still on pretty punchy multiples, but there's a lot of good businesses which have got strong market positions, maybe not the fastest growth, but reasonable growth, which are actually trading on really cheap valuations and where you can look at, at sort of mid-cycle and think that there's 15 or 20% a year returns that you could deliver for, for sort of three to five years if things normalize, if we get back to mid-cycle. Obviously, there are risks in the short term. The economy isn't going to be mid-cycle in the next six months. But, right. but if you've got a medium-term time frame, then, then certainly there's opportunities. And, and people, investors always have to remember that the stock market reacts before the economy. It, it anticipates the slowdown and it anticipates the recovery. So timing things exactly is very difficult and you sort of have to be very on top of where the opportunities are, what's going on with the fundamentals to, to, to do the best job of when to make those moves uh, and take, take the opportunities that you can see coming up. Matt Siddle, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I feel you've earned your Friday evening, which it is uh, for you now. Thank you very much for joining us on Fidelity Connects. Thank you, Pamela. Good to see you again. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.